Welcome back to Endless Vital Activity, conversations to inspire radical action. I'm David Johnston, founder of Accept and Proceed, and we believe the cross-pollination of minds and ideas is vital and that we can't find solutions in isolation. This season isn't just about what's happening in our troubled planet, but how we're responding to it. We will engage in wide-ranging conversations with radical thinkers, writers, creators and activists about the problems we have been given to solve. Through fearless creativity, we're seeking new perspectives to reimagine our world, from emergency to emergence. Today, I'm joined by activist Claire Farrell and musician and artist Brian Eno, as together they discuss their shared commitment to mobilizing change in the face of climate emergency under the banner of an emergent movement called Hard Art. For a while, Hard Art has been gathering some truly incredible thinkers and creators of our time, but the world does not yet know anything about it. We're recording this ahead of the launch uh, called The Fate of Britain, event at Factory International in Manchester on the weekend of the 22nd of February 2024, where the theme Come Together will run through every element. Claire, you were a guest on season one of Endless Vital Activity, and you talked about your past in the uh, forming and founding of Extinction Rebellion. It feels like a lot has happened since then, uh, not least of which we have become friends, but there's been a lot going on for Extinction Rebellion and yourself um, in the years that have passed. Uh, Brian, thank you for hosting us here at your studio today for the conversation. Um, you also have a past. I've heard it said uh, that you, you know, someone with a past, that past sometimes comes with a weight that can slow you down and you prefer to think about the present and the future where you can. Um, so I thought we'd start there, in the present. What is hard art in the here and now? Maybe I could ask that of you first, Claire. Hard art is a collection of people um, who have come together with hopefully enough open-mindedness not to restrict themselves with too tight a brief um, to allow something to emerge that we can't write on a paper before we started, um, but also certainly to support some critical things and in the context of evolving climate, damage and breakdown, the deterioration of our democracy. And what we said at the beginning was that we wanted to create a collective of people who could help to defibrillate people's imaginations to be able to support the psychic preparation of the general public to live in a very different type of society because the one that we're in is self-terminating and um, it's not working for that many people uh, in many, many ways. So we want to build a new world. And Brian, for you, what is hard art right now? Well, I'll pick up from what Claire said last about building a new world. I think what art does, it builds new worlds. That's that's what the experience of art is, to engage with some kind of a world that's being presented, either in the form of a novel or a film or a painting or a fashion statement. Those are all ways of experimenting with new feelings about things or seeing what your feelings are about things. And I think what all of us involved in hard art have realised is that, A, culture is important, art is important. It's not just the gravy that you put on after the serious things have been done, which is the way most governments think about art. But also that 
we really need to start addressing things on the level of feeling. What we've done in the climate change movement is we've drowned people in statistics and facts and scare stories, and there are lots of them, um, but we haven't really engaged properly with people's feelings about what kind of world they would rather be in, how they think things could be or ought to be, and we haven't given them the chance to... Um, experience those feelings and to see what they might be like. So we, I think we all agree that what we want to do is to make art an active part of how people's thinking is shaped. So I think the commitment is to try to use culture in favour of the endless barrage of facts and figures that we tend to get about this subject. What we want to say to people is, what do you feel? What would, you, what would you prefer to be feeling? What don't you want to feel? And here's how to think about that. I often wonder how on earth art seems to have evolved into something that is either entertainment or a nice to have rather than a way of making decisions. You know, on a societal level, it could have evolved very differently that art actually played a meaningful role in the way that we run our countries or the way that we make decisions as society. And... I suppose I'm interested in in where in the past you've um, maybe experienced art with teeth that has changed societies or maybe not experienced, but in your research and the thesis around what hard art could actually do, where you've seen it have traction previously. In my background, I've definitely worked with the theories of the situationists a lot. And you can see that evident in the work of the early part of Extinction Rebellion parking a boat in the middle of Oxford Circus, bringing people around it, using that as a vehicle for not only the communication of something that appears absurd but speaks of something frightening, actually, and the truth. Um, it also performed a sort of practical function of giving people something to latch onto. Literally, they were the barnacles, the people who chained themselves to the bottom of it to keep it in place. And before that, I was part of a a group called the the Space Hijackers, and we did a lot of work in finding often quite absurd, funny uh, ways to occupy public space with a view to give people a different experience of that place and um, in doing so encourage them to think, actually, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> and, you know, and I always feel like the intersection for me between what we've been talking about in the hard art room, participation design, experience design, messaging design, uh, and more widely about like what kind of artwork do we want to make or what kind of artwork can people collectively pull together to make is, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot in that, in, that, in that space for me that is really underexplored when you think about the word art and you think, well, freeze art forever or some kind of cynical, you know, in industrialised, corporatized industry where everyone's on the make and it's all about status and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think of, um, certainly I think of the situationist movement. And I would say um, one very good instance of when art worked, which is actually the name of a very, very good book about this subject, is during the Depression when the American government decided that partly to just create employment for people, 
we should get these artists at work, to work. So they commissioned great photographers, great painters, sculptors and so on and so on and said, start making art about where we are now, what's going on now. And suddenly America discovered this huge underbelly of popular art that nobody had taken seriously at all, like Appalachian folk music and cowboy music and all these sorts of things that suddenly via collectors like uh, John Lomax and Adam Lomax um, flooded the... It was the first time really that any modern uh, society, enlightened, enlightenment-based society, had taken popular art seriously. And what it revealed was that there was a huge creative uh, underlay to the whole of the society. Creativity didn't just happen at the top, which had been the assumption until then. You know, all that other stuff was considered as kind of crude, primitive music or painting or whatever it was. So, and that was a, that was actually a government-sponsored program. And I, I certainly wish we ever saw governments that had the vision to do that now. Mm. I suppose a good place to start is by defining maybe what art is. And I know this is something that you've kind of wrestled with over the years, maybe, and, and have got some kind of... Um, descriptions for potentially so it might be good to explore first what art is but then what might make a piece of hard art these are not easy questions you realize (laughs) (laughs) and you've asked two (laughs) um so well i think there there are actually quite a few answers to the first question what actually is art but um i'm going to try to keep the answer as short as possible um first of all I think anything useless that people make is probably art. Anything useless that they make because they like it, let's say, is probably art. Um, so, you know, you have to wear clothes, but you don't have to do elaborate crochet. The elaborate crochet is an extra. Uh, the clothes you need because it's cold. The elaborate crochet doesn't have to be there. So this is something that somebody has done for some other reason than functional reasons um you have to you have to make food but you don't have to have wonderful elaborate cuisines like you know gold leaf on on curries and so on or uh, extraordinary birthday cakes or something like that so so there's a level of things we have to do to eat to have sex to communicate with each other and then there's a level of other things that we do on top of those that we really don't have to do and they they're stylistic and the main pleasure of them is stylistic pleasure oh doesn't that look great doesn't claire look great today because she decided to do to make an effort rather than to just put on a sack or something like that or wrap a towel around her um so so the question is why do we bother to do all of that extra it takes up quite a lot of our time and for most people it's probably takes up most of their disposable income, engaging somehow in that world of things that you didn't have to do. And I think it's because we have this insatiable and totally useful appetite for wanting to experience different feelings. So that's based on the idea that most of our important decisions are not made on the basis of spreadsheets. We don't sit down and decide who we're going to live with or Um, work with or have fun with 
by making out a spreadsheet and ticking off their character traits. You know, he's quite intelligent. She, she's, <laughs> she's got a good income and so on. That's not normally the way we make our important life decisions. We make them on the basis of feelings. Feelings is actually the beginning of thinking. Thinking happens after feeling. Thinking is the attempt to rationalise feeling and to see what you then do about it. But feeling is the first thing. So we ought to get good at feeling. And we ought to be able to sort out our feelings and to have a lot of practice in evaluating them. I think that's that's what you use art for, to do that. Um, I could go on about this for the rest of the time you've got, but I won't. <laughs> let's, say, let's say art is the way we deal with the world of feelings and revel in it and enjoy it. The second question is, you said, was how would we recognise a piece of hard art? Well, I think you recognise it by its ability to get people to direct their attention somewhere. One of the things that art does, it says, look at this, take this thing seriously. You know, some classic examples are... Andy Warhol looking at a soup can and saying, hey, you know, that's, that's beautiful too. Nobody had thought that before. Perhaps somebody had, but nobody had made a living out of thinking it. Um, so, so I think what art is often doing is saying, shift your attention, take it somewhere else, take something else seriously. And that's what we would like to do. We'd like to say, take, for instance, the issue of governance seriously. Don't just accept it as a given this is how it works. We go every four years and tick a box and then go back to watching television for the rest of the four years. Take the thing seriously. What do we want it to be? What do we want it to do? Um, so I think what we're one of the things we're doing is we're attention directing. Uh, that's what XR was doing, you know. It was saying, hey, look at us. You think we're mad, but actually think about what we're doing and uh, take it seriously. It strikes me that art often gets interfered with by money and greed and the art market, if, if you like, the way it seems to have evolved has definitely been co-opted and influenced by, you know, often individual players kind of making value of art to be a certain thing based on individual investments. And artists have provoked that issue over the years in really interesting ways. I love the work of the K Foundation, where they were awarding simultaneous to the Best Artist of the Year Award, the Turner Prize, uh, where I think in the early 90s you got 20,000 awarded. They would simultaneously award 40,000 for the worst uh, Artist of the Year Award to the same artist. But they would also put that 40,000 on a canvas uh, at a certain time on the steps of the Tate and say, if you don't come and pick it up, artist will burn it. So obviously the artists would come and pick it up. And this is very, they were very provocative and it's very interesting. I don't think they even fully have explained or maybe understand what they were doing, but these were acts against capitalism. And I think, I think it's interesting, this knotty problem between greed, money, art. And actually a friend of ours, poet Thomas Sharp, goes so far as to say anything that you can make money off is not art mm -hmm. because it's sullied from the moment. So the relationship between hard art and, and money, is this something that you're wrestling with in any way? We're thinking quite a lot about it because obviously if you want to do stuff, you need resources. And um, sometimes uh, you need money to make a project happen. And, you know, my work before the movement 
with a, a friend who I started a project with called Body Politic, Miles. We did workshops, which he was really nervous at the time. I said, we've got to make things that aren't for sale. <laughs> and it has to be uh, not allowed to be for sale, actually, which is quite an interesting question because the only way you could make it not allowed to be sold is that you've got a contract and then you have to have money to enforce the contract and you end up in the legal system so it's actually very very difficult to escape and some other friends of ours were working on stuff with the Brixton Pound um and uh you know that is also a, a, a project about local resources and trust and exchange and what's really valued and so we we were sort of embedded in thinking about that sort of quite a long time before Extinction Rebellion came along. And so the thinking of trying to make things that you can give away intentionally so that things aren't for sale, so that you can focus on the thing that you're trying to be about rather than keeping your project alive because you have to constantly fundraise or you have to constantly sell things, has always been there in the in the background of my work for, for many years. And obviously now that we've got a collective of, of people forming who are putting on a big event in Manchester and we've been saying, okay, who can help us because we need some money? Um, and ongoing, we're going to have to work out how we how we think about this stuff in a in a way which feels new and like it leaves us with the potential to do things and without the burden of complicated governance that sometimes can break groups apart if they're not really really tight and hard art isn't a tight group that's like a small collective of people who can sit on top of everything every day together it's quite a it's quite a, a, a dispersed network of some people who don't come so often they're very busy but we really value them and you know we hear from them from time to time and so how do you run something like that in a way which helps the people who need it and doesn't damage the relationships um and a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of governance and thinking about politics or where you were talking earlier about you know Art as a mode of decision making, that's really interesting to me because this whole strand of work is is very deeply about relational work and money is a, a way of managing relations, which I've rejected a lot and I don't think it works for us very well on many, many levels in society. Mm. So it's quite complicated. We have been thinking about this a lot because obviously we want to fund hard art to allow it to continue. And my my particular thing is that I want to fund individuals who are doing things. So individuals have difficulty collecting money because it's hard for them to go to grant foundations if they aren't incorporated into sort of groups with a mission and some sort of program that you can evaluate. But you know, everybody knows that there are certain people who make things happen, who do good things. And you want to uh, keep them going, you know. You don't want them to have to get a cleaning job in an office block or something or whatever else would take up all their valuable time. So my my solution to that is to do a sort of Robin Hood technique where um, I sell things to rich people and redistribute it to poor people. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think the rich people feel hard done by it. They don't have to buy the things. They do it voluntarily. This kind of thing that you see in the studio here and the music I make. With music, of course, you have the added advantage that 
it's accessible to anybody anyway. Mm. So you you can sell things, but if people want to hear it and they don't want to pay for it, they can also do so. It's a very different business model with music. I'd I'd love to um, actually explore a little further the idea of governance in relation to arts. One of the demands of Extinction Rebellion um, around people's assemblies being introduced to the way that we govern was very powerful. And I heard a stat recently, which is 6% of the UK population is privately educated, but 57% of our government was. So, like, that's not a surprise. We, we don't really think of our government as representative. And you spoke very eloquently on this on the last episode that we recorded. But still, that's a stark statistic, like 57 versus 6. But actually, if you were to switch out that 57% for artists, what would happen to our government? Feels like that would be very beautiful. And I wonder... It'd have much better parties for a start. A lot better parties, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Proper parties. Um, Yeah, I wonder if there's any aspirations like that that have been explored over the last 12 months or so by the the sessions that you've been holding, like a highest aspiration. Yeah, definitely. Good good question. Um, Well, of course, nearly all of us have as many misgivings about the current state of government as you could possibly have. I don't think any of us would want to be involved in a government of this type or under these current rules of constitution of government. Even if it was working well in its own terms, it wouldn't be adequate to what needs to be done. It's it's not that the people are shite, which they actually are, but that isn't the problem. <laughs> The system therein is also shite, so you you have a double enshittification <laughs> going on, um, and and you can see the results of it. It's it's absolutely terrible. Every decision is awful. Every good initiative doesn't make it past the starting post. Um, so, but but all the same, I don't think any of us would think, okay, we're going to jump in and make it all better. The only way you can really make it better is by thinking of some other way of doing it, mm. of kind of getting rid of what's there. Yeah. Or not. you don't have to do that in a revolutionary way. You just have to start building something else. That we're into building an alternative, I think. And that means sometimes we have to talk to those people and make them think we take them very seriously. <laughs> do you tell them that they're a shit multiplier? <laughs> <laughs> and shitty fires. Um, <laughs> Well, I don't think I don't think we have to even say it because I think it's implicit in what we're doing, you know. Um, and I, most of the people that I meet who are in government are decent, honourable people, which means I meet very few Tories, um, and they they actually have good intentions, and they're trapped, completely entangled, really, in a system that isn't going to serve their ambitions. You know, they. They're terrified about the media, for example. They know they know they can be crucified as easily as Jeremy Corbyn was if they put a foot in the wrong direction. So, so we have to do something that exists and thrives outside of the current media landscape. Um, and of course, once we start, if if and when we start doing something that seriously makes an impact, we'll have to deal with that mm. because I can already imagine the headlines that are going to go with it, just as the sort of headlines we saw with when XR were very active when they started out. You know, it will work on 
kind of character assassination and humiliation and stupid jokes and so on and so on. Anything to avoid discussing the topic that XR existed to talk about. Mm. So we know that's coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the option, I'm afraid, isn't to join that side and have a column in the Daily Express or something like that, or accept a CBE and hope that you might bump into someone at a garden party that <laughs> will change things. <laughs> it isn't. I've turned down two CBEs now. <laughs> There should be a special CBE, shouldn't the uh, the CBE refused? Yeah, refuse refuse Nicks. <laughs> but I'm interested. They came back for a second time. How did that happen? Did you have to say no? I really mean no. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Why did they try again? Well, there was a, there was about a thirteen or fourteen year interval between between they the thought two you attempts. Might soften to the idea. Yeah. Well, that's the empire for you, isn't it? Mm. Persistent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, maybe maybe they're right. Maybe by the time I'm 93 or something, I'll think, oh, yes, I suppose. I'm go right. on then. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Twist my arm. <laughs> on the politics thing, I just want to say one thing about the idea of building an alternative. So the reason why I met Brian was that a friend of ours, Jamie, introduced us and... Jamie is wild about the whole field of deliberative democracy, participatory citizens' assemblies and all of this kind of stuff. And I think that's partly why he and Brian have sort of bonded so well over over the years. But in a way, I think what's interesting to me about thinking about having set up hard art and thinking about trying to set up alternative stuff is that it feels like when I'm trying to do shorthand in a conversation, I say, you know, it's like when we were in the, in the XR time, starting the movement, we were saying, ask the people in power to give you space, to give you access, give people a space to come together and have assemblies and get access. And now that we've seen that when they give you that by their good grace, they just as easily take it away again and ignore the outcomes. And it becomes a a performative focus group at best because they have no intention of doing the things that you actually want them to do. Then now we're in the business of the alternative and that means that it's a Buckminster Fuller approach. And for me, once you start to go, okay, well then who else is there? Buckminster Fuller, James Lovelock. You start to think about this kind of, you know, intra or transdisciplinary sort of polymathic, scientific, but also very sort of artistic and, and very design sort of orientated individuals who've been really influential for a, for a lot of us that actually, you know, having people who come to hard art like economists and wanting to make sure from the outset that we invited people from faith communities, that we're reconnecting with wisdom traditions and faith groups and, you know, our friend Liz from the from the Unitarian Church and inviting people in that are more broad than just art. So we wanted it to feel cultural in the in the broadest sense. And if you include a bunch of people with different disciplines, including a few academics and, you know, I would like there to be some more scientists maybe along the line, but when you include those different disciplines and then you think, would this be a viable way to construct ideas for new governance or even invite people to take part in building those new 
I, these these new models of governance, well, then I think you you have something actually very rich, which is much more substantial and probably less frightening to the average person than just saying we think artists would make a better government. I mean, I think they would, but <laughs> there's there's also a there's also a breadth and a and a depth to it. And once you recognise the creativity that's inherent in scientists, which is there. And you compare that to the people who are trying to do good economics work and you compare that to the people who are making good, brilliant records or brilliant clothes. Well, then then, then I think you're getting somewhere in terms of the level of creativity that we need to have to get us out of the old and into the actually into something that might work in the 21st century better than the sort of thing that we're dragging around with us like a thing yeah. attached to our ankles. Yeah. And and also it's it's worth noting that this is already happening. Yeah. So that there are lots and lots of other people besides us yeah. thinking about this and and experimenting with it. You know, there are all sorts of cooperative communities and deliberative democracy organizations and there are um, citizens' assemblies here and there. There's there's a lot going on, and it's a mess. Every, everybody's doing it, and they're all doing it slightly differently, but themes are starting to emerge. Something is starting to happen, I think. And um, actually, much more is happening than we would ever know from reading the newspapers. Yes. They don't cover it. It's not a story. It's not dramatic in the mm. sense that newspapers want. Um, basically, we mostly read the bad news. And in climate change, there's a lot of it. But there's quite a lot of good news as well. Consciousness is growing because of climate change and the realisation that government isn't going to fix it. That's, that's really where the consciousness growth comes from. They're not going to fix it. It's going to be us. And we have to twist their arms. We're looking forward to that part. Yes, yeah, so am I. I think there is something happening. You can feel it. And I, actually, if I think about... You know, this word hardest, hard art is a brilliant name, by the way. And, and the hardest, you know, I've heard that thrown around and seen it on, on the base camp thrown around. And what makes a hardest, I was thinking about, um, you know, when I was younger, I used to love rock stars. And over the last year, I've had experiences where I went to a farmer's foundation in Byron Bay, which was I was stood with, uh, you know, 800 big Australian farmers who were so full of light about the future potential of regenerative agriculture and syntropic like ways of being able to create. And that was like the best gig. The keynote by Dr. Zach Bush was like the best gig I've ever been to, <laughs> like genuinely. And I also went to a festival in, in Sintra in Portugal last year called the House of Beautiful Business that was for me as good an experience as Glastonbury in 1993. And these things are emerging, like the farmers are the rock stars and actually the economists that you're inviting and the philosophers, like a hardest isn't an artist necessarily. I can understand that what you're bringing about is maybe a worldview and a philosophy that can inform and permeate so many different disciplines. Yes, and of course what happens is that it, it's, funnily enough, those kind of people are being absorbed into industry much more than in, into government. Industries realise that if you want to get the smart people, you get their views along with them. Uh, and they share similar views about the future. Uh, they don't, they're not going to, the, the the dull people are the people who are going to go into the oil industry, the thickos, the, the ones who care about making a lot of money and doing what their dad did. 
but the bright people aren't going there. I was talking not long ago to a, a Finnish billionaire, and, and he said, well, every industry now has to have a proper kind of program about how it's going to talk about climate change, because otherwise you just don't get the best graduates. They won't, come, they won't work in your company. They want to work somewhere that they're proud of being. So that's a, that's a kind of deep social change going on there. And it means the brains are going into different places. Mm-hmm. And it matters where the brains go. It certainly does. So you've been meeting as a group for a little over a year in this studio. And um, when I attended one of the sessions, I was really intrigued by some of the chaos factor that was introduced, you know, through either picking a card and then clustering people that way and then maybe putting up some questions that the group would ask. So at the start of this conversation, I asked you if you had any questions of hard art and I'm feeling uh, compelled maybe to ask us to look at one of those questions. And I'm quite intrigued by yours, Claire. So my question for hard art, this came up in the, we had a big circle where we all sat around at the end of last year and said like, how's it been and what have we done and what are we doing and are we all right and what do you think and, you know. And my question was uh, one of the things that came up for me that felt important when I first talked about the word hard art with Charlie years ago was um, how is it going to be dangerous (laughs) Yeah, it's got to be a threat. If it isn't a threat, then it isn't working, actually. And who does it threaten? Well, I hope we know who that will be. But exactly how it's dangerous? Well, you know, for instance, yesterday I was talking to a woman who has just formed a kind of website which is about the history of um, fossil fuel propaganda. She starts in 1914 with the attempts to make oil an acceptable product and then it goes through the the whole history of how that's been done, how children's exercise books, school books have been written by the oil industry basically to position that as the the central American industry. So that's dangerous. (laughs) For the oil industry, that consciousness, that realisation that we've been sold a, a story... Uh, that was an invented story. That's that's dangerous material, I think. And, of course, it's, there's other kinds of dangers as well, and some of them are serious in that they will affect us too. It's not a case of um, one group being winners and the other group being losers. Um, if we don't grapple with this quite soon, there will be mass job losses and there will be unemployment, etc., etc., because we're not acknowledging that a big change is going to come. There's going to be all sorts of chaos if, and we have to learn to deal with it. We have to start with dealing with it now. My my question, if I may go on to my question, please, um, was who isn't represented in hard art who should be? Since we normally do these meetings in my studio and I invite some of the people who come in, I'm always thinking... What kind of mind isn't represented here? Um, and that that's what I think about quite a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my job is to gather ingredients in a way and to hope that some of them spark together and something grows. And I think we've been doing that quite successfully. We've got some very good relationships now. 
And that matters because you cannot create a revolution without some kind of bonding going on at the beginning, some kind of group of people who are loyal to each other, who will help each other, support each other, and do it together, you know. So cooperation has to be at the beginning of it. I think we've got that part going now. Now I wonder who isn't represented. And conspicuous by their absence to me is the military. I think we need the military involved. Um, just like I thought we needed faith leaders involved. We've got a few of those now. We'll probably add more. They're very important because they understand communities. The military is important because they exist, in theory, for defence. What do we need defending against? It's not actually Russians. It's not Chinese, I don't think. It's not, it's not another national government. It's a global crisis. That's where we need defence. These are the people who will end up dealing with it anyway. You know, if floods start happening, it's, it'll be the army that gets called out. So why don't we just cut out the middleman and say, hold on, this isn't about fighting wars. This is about fighting against a global emergency. Um, and I know that a lot of military people are very keen to recognise that as well. So, so I, I, want, I want a bigger connection with military and intelligence. That's amazing. The, I heard a quote recently which was, the transition will come whether by design or through shock, and uh -huh. you'd prefer it by design, but let's be honest it may be coming through shock and how we respond to that shock. How can we respond with love and care to the shocks that are imminent? Yes, there, there are two parts to that. One is how do we deal with the world that's dying, the old world, the old uh, institutions, the old bureaucracies and so on. And I think Cassie Robinson talks about this, doesn't she, about the idea of hospicing out of existence. Out yeah. of existence. So we, we, we let those things die, but we do it with kindness. You know, We don't suddenly fire a whole industry like Margaret Thatcher did with the miners. Mm. We say, okay, we've got to find something else for you to do. Yeah. Your industry is dying. We're, we're going to think of a way that we can help you out of this. It's not your fault. <laughs> and you, we owe you a debt of gratitude, really. Absolutely. And so I think just as we should be thinking about how we shepherd in new things, we should also be thinking about how we kindly and without creating a backlash of resentment and anger, the kind of backlash that got Donald Trump elected, mm -hmm. we, we have to think how we deal with what's disappearing as well. Um, that That's a very difficult issue right now. And because at the moment, politicians are using that as their main rocket fuel. Mm. They're using that anger and resentment. That's what all the right-wing politicians are doing. They love it. You know, just like Netanyahu loves the fascism he's, he's inspiring in, um, in Israel because he, that's his rocket fuel. So we have to present an alternative to that. I've just been asked to go to Port Talbot with somebody to support a conversation with the community where obviously the steelworks is going through a massive layoff of, of people. And there are environmental campaigners that I know from the local area who are saying, you know, this is the best thing 
for the environment. These furnaces, they're, they're old, they've got to go. Yeah. They have to change anyway. They're not good in sustainability terms and the blah, blah. But obviously the way that it's happened and the way that it's happening is not what lots of people wanted. So there's a big fight between the trade unions, the national politicians, the geopolitics and the international sort of corporatism and the fight for the steel industry and the narrative that says we've got to keep some steel alive in this country and we want to do it like this or like that and where's the money going to come from and who's going to support it? And then, of course, the question, the older question that would have been, I think, you know, well, we've, you know, this is a problem, so let's talk about nationalising something so the state can support it. But obviously, there's such a bunch of fucking chances. Like, nobody wants to, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a spirit from recent strikes of, like, we'd love to see a nationalised post service in this country, I think. People love the NHS. People... But do you want to give them another industry to manage? No. Why? Because they're fuckers. So, you know, you're caught in this in this place where people are talking about the idea of a just transition and then they're faced with the reality of basic just top-down corporate decision-making and top-down Westminster decision-making and a bottomed-out local government that's got no resources and can't afford to do hardly anything. So the people in that town are rightly freaking out about the impacts that's going to cause them. And I'm hoping that by going there to support some of these people to have these conversations about like what can be done, what should be done, what the community might do to to pull together and to collectively learn about each other's sides of the argument. Like how can people sit there and say, well, actually, you might work in the plant and you're very passionate about that issue and your jobs and everything else, but the way you talk about the climate is as if you don't understand. So let me explain to you what I know about this, the context that we are actually in <laughs> mm-hmm. because lots of people just still don't realise, you know, how how urgent things are and how things are breaking down and all of that. So there is something before us which I think is, um, you know, what I say to students in art schools and stuff when it feels like I'm going around a lot of the time saying things that are very bleak, actually... Um, you know, what's good about this situation for creative people in particular is that when I left university, I thought a lot of shit needed to change and I went and tried to do that and it made almost no difference and I was very, very distressed by how long I spent trying to do it and making so little impact, which is why I ended up starting Extinction Rebellion and breaking windows and doing all this kind of radical stuff. But actually now, if you look at the situation that we're in, there's a there's a crunch point of like, shit's going to change like you say, whether you like it or not. And so the opportunity to do things differently is there if we can organise ourselves well enough and if people can uh, just excite people with the idea of making things different. And the more people it appears obvious to that they're in a state of social and environmental decline, the easier the sell is going to be to say, let's all get together and do something really fucking exciting and new because... Why wouldn't you? It's like the end of the world as we know it. Yeah, almost the perfect segue to my question, which is very relevant to the two strands of the conversation, which is what is creativity as an act of survival? And this was actually born out of a conversation with a friend of mine called Joe recently, where she's Colombian and she was actually at home over Christmas. And she was talking about... Um, the government has never uh, like invested in recycling in Colombia. 
So you've had people that recognize the value of the material that are just basically going through people's rubbish and, you know, kind of salvaging it. And they were just seen as critters, like lowest levels of society. But more recently, as Colombia has realized that recycling is a necessary thing and the government didn't do anything, they recognize that this infrastructure has just emerged mm -hmm. by these people that are doing it. So they're respected now. She was seeing, saying her family were preparing all of their recycling materials. Oh, they're coming. Like, and these people aren't critters anymore. They're respected members of society that are thanked for creating this infrastructure. And it was interesting to me. She said, that's very Colombian. It's kind of like the hustle that you have to have in order to survive is very creative. I'd always have been of the opinion that actually creativity, like you could be tactical in survival mode, but not necessarily creative in the way that I think of art, great art. But actually that reframed maybe to me the idea of like creativity as an act of survival. Well, I think one of the things that keeps happening is that new forms of culture emerge and they're very quickly appropriated by the people who want to make money out of them or gather status by them. And they become the orthodoxy and, and sort of become exclusive. You know, there are rules for who can belong to that. And very quickly, new people start doing things. So there's that constant process of it being undermined by new people wanting to be heard And I, I don't mind the orthodoxy's form. You know, Richard Feynman said, physics precedes one funeral at a time. And I think that's really how things change. The old people just die. <laughs> And the new people then have their ideas exposed. So, of course, we want it to be a little bit faster than just relying on funerals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unless we're all also going to kill a lot of people. <laughs> um, but... I, I think there is a sort of natural organic process where stuff keeps coming up from what is called the bottom. You know, the history of pop music is that, really. Mm. If you think about it, pop music is outsider art. You know, there was mm. the Academy with all its sort of... Uh, the Well, the conservatory, I should say, with all its theories about what constituted decent and respectable music. And then suddenly there were all, all these outsider artists... In the art world, you would call them outsider artists because they didn't go to art college. Well, none of us went to music college, or very few of us. And, and I, think, I think we have to always be looking at who are the outsiders, who are the creative outsiders, because they are for sure the source of the future. The academy has a job to do. Good, it does it, and it basically digests stuff and puts it into the past. That's what the academy does. It makes little bundles of poop, cultural <laughs> poop that go back, go off into the past. And they, re they act as compost, really. New culture can grow out of that. But don't let's mistake them for the cutting edge. The academies aren't the cutting edge. It's the outsiders, always. Like Claire here, outsider artist. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a final point about survival? I do. A while ago, I tried to write a piece, which I don't think I ever put anywhere, maybe I should, about um, assemblies and deliberative democracy and participation and all that kind of good stuff, but from a sort of spiritual, philosophical position. And whilst I was working on it, I came to this line that said, actually, because of the world we've created, it's going to be very destabilized. We're going to have a lot of problems, going to be harder to survive. 
empathy is going to become a survival skill. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are so interested in critical kind of discourse design. And that's part of what I've become fascinated with at the sort of, you know, later stages of the environment work and also thinking about this in terms of deliberative democracy. It's how do you design ways that people can have conversations mm. and engage with each other, which maximises the possibility of them finding good resolution that they can all live with, empathy is in the room, compassion is in the room, where people are reconnected to their sense of their own humanity. And I think, you know, that that relates very neatly to what Brian's been saying about art being a way of becoming a feeling monger and someone mm. who's helping you to, like, have try out different feelings mm -hmm. in a safe space, in a you know, in a place where it's not got real consequences, you're in a gallery, you're listening to your headphones or whatever it is. Mm. So for me, there's, there is something critical about the idea of these things as survival skills. Yeah. The most yeah. important thing about art is that you can switch it off. And so you, you endure it by choice. And therefore you can, you can let the feelings get as intense as, as they want to be because you can just shut the door or shut the book or leave the cinema or whatever you want. And that's, that's why it's important, because you can go a long way with simulated feelings. It's a little bit like, um, you know, if you, have you ever been in a flight simulator where you're flying a plane? Mm. It's absolutely the most terrifying thing you can do, even though you know nothing's going to happen to you when you crash it, as you, I, I crashed my 747. <laughs> <laughs> But but I certainly had the feeling of it. The feeling was as real as could be. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you both um, for having this conversation. It's clear that, you know, hard art is in a very exciting, formative, emergent phase. And it's been an honour to be able to chat with you both at these early stages of it. Um, I wonder if in closing we might project into the future and ask if you were to send back a message from the future of hard arts, what would that be? Told you so. <laughs> <laughs> or the Spike Milligan one, I told you I was ill. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose um, definitely try as hard as you can to do it now. Yeah. Get involved. I mean, what's incredible to me is that the... I, I used to think, until about last year, I thought, it's amazing there's so much, such a growth of intelligence in the world. You know, if you think of how much more connected all our brains are to each other, how knowledge is kind of increasing exponentially, and I thought, it's got to make for a better world. And then I thought suddenly one day, but distraction is increasing even faster. Yeah. That really is a big problem to me. There's so much else to distract you from actually sitting down and thinking, who am I? Where am I? What do I want? What can I do? Those questions, which are really important questions, um, just get lost in the blitz mm. of Netflix and all the other things that we do. Absolutely. So don't get distracted is my message. We are overstimulated, experiencing thousands of times more stimulation than our predecessors ever did. So if anyone listening 
to this would like to now go away and throw away their phone or turn off their device or at least have a, a dopamine detox this weekend go and do it but thank you both so much it's been a great pleasure to have this conversation Thanks. thank you very much indeed I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did this is Endless Vital Activity conversations to inspire radical action